You're tuned into Fork Podcast. I'm Sean Chris Lewis, your host, and it's looking like we're getting back to some things, right? Some restrictions are being lifted and we're getting out a little bit more and hope you guys are all staying well, still respecting all those social distancing rules because remember, COVID-19 is still a real thing and we want to make sure that we respect all of the policies and regulations put in place to protect us and especially protect the elderly and those people who are vulnerable. And uh, now that we're out and being among people, it's incredible to see the conversations, right? I don't know about you guys, but like, pretty sure you must be experiencing the same thing where all the conversations that we're having with people have really changed a lot, right? All the different insights that people have into their lives and where they want to be going and the changes that they want to make. We all have to agree, I I would think, that COVID-19 really revealed a lot in our systems. Uh, one of the things it did reveal, too, is the fragilities in our system, right? There's one thing that I've been saying multiple times throughout the podcast was that COVID-19 really helped us to see where the weaknesses are in our system and not only woke us up to those weaknesses, but also put us in a predicament where we actually have to change them, right? There's no passive acknowledgement of the problems that we're witnessing in our in our uh, infrastructure and in our distribution networks and in our um, access to food. This this is stuff that actually demanded action. And in a way, the story is pretty good because humans over the past three months have really reinvented the way we do a lot of things, in some ways more sustainable to the environment. Since we were all sequestered, we even saw the environment healing itself, which is kind of alarming because it tells us that the, the way we do commerce and the way we've done business is harmful to the environment. That the moment that we sort of back off of it, there's some healing that takes place. So I hope that we can really acknowledge that going forward and continue to build out our system so that it's more respectful to our environment. And we don't lose this opportunity to make some of the most important changes that we need to make. But let's just talk about those fragilities for a second. I'd say that one of the most pressing issues is the sheer number of people who are not in good health in our society. Yes, some, like we live in Canada, we have a fairly healthy population, and and that's great. But we have to acknowledge that there's a very large percentage of our population who don't actually enjoy high levels of health and actually don't enjoy access to great health. COVID has helped us to understand that, you know, from obesity, kidney disease, diabetes, uh, heart disease, these are generally conditions of lifestyle, and they put an individual at significant risk to uh, contract disease and illness, and obviously limits their mortality as well. Now, the reason that somebody might involve themselves in unhealthy lifestyle practices is Really, that's another conversation. It's The reasons are extensive, but my personal grievance is when a particular population lives in an environment that it sets the individuals up for failure should they choose to try and pursue a healthier, active lifestyle. You know, they have very little access to healthy food, inhumane living spaces, um, rampant uh, drug and alcohol use, decaying family units, um, 
high crime, all of these make it for make it almost impossible to practice or have access to a healthy life. In fact, it's actually referred to as health inequality. I'm listen, I'm very cautious to to promote any vision where we look for all individuals to be equal because that is such a that's a such a huge task to go after that it can actually make us not try to do it, right? So what I like to do is look at elements that we can look for equality that can better a whole population and allow us to create the next levels of more equality. So I say starting with health equality, where we create a system that allows someone to pursue a better version of themselves that's set up in a way that they are more likely to succeed if they're willing to put in the hard work. The problem is that we have a system in play that in certain populations, even if they want to try, they're set up for failure. I just want to propose that we create a a system where people who do want to pursue a better version of themselves, a healthier version of themselves, that the environment around them is conducive to that change. I think it's the most humane thing to do, to award a population with the ability to pursue a higher self. Some of the worst affected populations of health inequality are actually remote indigenous people. Years of marginalization and systematic destruction of their way of life and environmental degradation have left these populations with some of the highest risk factors in health. Though we'd like to believe there's like some silver bullet solution, like a single solution to this problem, uh, today's conversation actually is going to help to shed some light on uh, just how complex the plight of these indigenous remote populations are. Our guest today is Dr. Bernard Reed, who's a family medical practitioner in northeastern Canada, where he practices and serves primarily the local Cree population. He's going to share his perspective on the struggles of the indigenous population and talk about his ongoing learning, working with such a unique people and the incredible challenges that come with working in remote regions. So let's get on with it and welcome Dr. Bernard Reed. Hello. Yes, sir. How are you, Bernie? Good. So where are you now? Are you still uh, sequestered in cottage country? Yeah, it's a really, uh, really tough life. I'm sitting on the on the patio overlooking a small lake, you know, just having having some coffee and <laughs> a relaxed morning. Kind of makes a guy wonder if he wants to go back to the, the even if it is a new normal. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's my girlfriend's cottage, and I've tried to gently convince her that maybe you know maybe it'd be cool to live out here instead of in the city. <laughs> but then uh, you know, this uh, pandemic happened, and in a strange way, we ended up spending a lot of months here so there's it's an upside for me obviously it's it's a really terrible situation but it's um it's a nice consolation for me to be able to spend time here yeah do you spend a lot of time outdoors i mean you are working in northern quebec right yeah i do spend a fair amount of time outdoors but i would say it sort of ebbs and flows in northern quebec it depends on the on the season june and july i uh, i spent in 
in uh, Wiscaganish and Mysticini last year, and the insects are terrible. Like I've never seen, I, I've seen bad insects before. I, you know, I spent a large amount of my youth outdoors and, uh, you know, in, in kind of fairly rural areas, uh, but I've never seen anything <laughs> like this before and it's hard to bear. But in the winter and fall and spring, um, yeah, I mean, I'm out walking my dogs for kilometers and kilometers. I picked up uh, cross-country skiing and really try to, and, and snowshoeing. So try to spend a, a lot of time doing that. And uh, out here at the cottage, uh, definitely try to get in, you know, in the lake a lot and I'm going to get back into road cycling and I try to spend as much time outdoors as possible. Yeah. Yeah. It, it sounds it's amazing. Very, it's therapeutic. You know, it's uh it's really nice to be able to do that. Yeah. So we're talking about Northern Quebec. So for people who are listening, that that's, that's Mysticini, right? That's where you're, you're um, practicing medicine. Yeah. So you got a, a good memory. I do spend some time in Mysticini and that's, that's really the community that through which I was introduced to the region, the James Bay region. But I'm primarily working in a place called Wiscaganish, which is, uh, they call it a coastal, a more coastal community. And it's on the, at the end of the Rupert River, which opens onto the James Bay. As you know, the James Bay is sort of a small offshoot of the Hudson, Hudson Bay, right? So very, uh, very rural. And, and I, I, would, I think it qualifies as, as remote as well. It's about a thousand or thousand two hundred kilometers from Montreal, straight north. Straight north. So tell me, Bernie, you know I'm dying to ask you, because the story's got to be interesting. <laughs> How do you go from um, McGill University graduate in medicine? And mm-hmm. just tell us a little bit about your story, because it, it's got to be interesting how you ended up in near James Bay, northern Quebec, a thousand miles, a thousand kilometers north of Montreal, practicing medicine. You know, I knew you were going to ask me a question like that, and, and, and I was thinking about how to answer it, because <laughs> I could give a very long story and I could give a, a, a shorter story. You can give whatever story you like, <laughs> Bernie. <laughs> The medium version is that I had an interest in doing rural family medicine. So family medicine and and specifically rural, probably before I started medical school. And one of the options that uh, McGill Medicine provides, I believe they still do so because we we get learners from from, uh, the McGill undergraduate program, is to do a, you, you do two months of family medicine in your clerkship. Clerkship is that thing where people call rotations and you go and you try out different specialties. So you have your surgery rotations and your family medicine and psychiatry and, and this and that. And they used to be about a, about a month long. And at McGill Medicine, what they did at the time was they offered, uh, or actually I, I believe we were required to do one one month in rural medicine and, and one month in, um, in urban. And because I, I saw that as a interesting opportunity to to, you know, to see something very different, I requested to do both of my months in uh, in the rural setting. There's a bit of a, a lottery where you can you can rank your preferred sites. Then there's a bit of a random draw to see where you go. And I basically said, okay, well, I'm going to rank my sites in order of of distance from from <laughs> from Montreal. So yeah. I had actually requested uh, and for for further north, which was in um, in like uh, Kujawak, I think it was, or it might have been Provonatuk, one of the two, and then worked my way down. I had heard uh, Mysticini was a great learning site, although closer, so I ranked it a bit higher. 
Um, and anyway, when they when they did the lottery, I ended up going to Mistissini and another place called Temiskaming, which is not in the James Bay region, but not too far from it. And anyway, I just had such a tremendous experience in Mistissini in medical school. I was really blown away by the opportunity, the the exposure to a very different culture a very different place, and really just an amazing way to practice medicine. I was very, very impressed and, and moved by the teaching there as well. The setting was uh, incredible. It, it, it exceeded the reputation that it had in, in my eyes, where, you know, A, you're being exposed to such an interestingly different culture where you're, you know, where the, the doctors are, are doing their best to adapt and provide the best care possible. But also the medicine they do is, is they're, they're true generalists, you know, they're, mm -hmm. they're very isolated. Um, the practice, medical practice really ranges from prenatal to geriatrics. That can happen in family medicine in the city as well, but not always the case. Sometimes it gets a little bit more specialized. Right. And, you know, so, you, and, you know, and emergency medicine, right? So you're, you're seeing, you're seeing a pregnant lady in the morning and then the next, and then and by the afternoon, you're seeing uh, some guy in their forties who may be having a heart attack and you just, the exposure was really incredible. And, and they had created this learning environment, which they, it really made it easy and, and pleasant to learn. And because of various reasons, that wasn't always the case for me in the exposures I had had in the urban setting. And, and I just was able to flourish, I felt like, in, in that context. Let me just ask you one quick question there, because what I find very fascinating that you just said, you'll be seeing a pregnant woman in the morning and an elderly person in the afternoon, which I think is what makes your choice to be a general practitioner so much more interesting than, like you said, in a in a urban setting. I think that's one of the, is that one of the primary um, reasons that people don't choose to go into general to be a general practitioner because they find that there's not enough what variety in it is 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 that a thing i think it, it might be a thing I, you know it's hard for me to make generalities i think that there's there's a number of things that kind of dissuade people from becoming a a family doctor or a generalist one of them is in, in canada family medicine residency is two years mm -hmm. right you know when when you go from having a a two-year training program and then moving directly into seeing that variety of patients and, and really managing, in my context anyway, you, you can manage some pretty complicated stuff that, mm -hmm. that not everybody would be comfortable managing. And I'm, and I'm not comfortable with, frankly, but that's part of the appeal and part of the opportunity to learn. But you're, when you, it's a very uncomfortable, um, it can be a very uncomfortable situation, right? Especially early in a career where, where I am now. Okay. Um, Do you mean as far as feeling competent to deal with exactly. what comes? Yeah, yeah. And, and this is not to put down specialists in any way. I, I have the utmost respect of course, for of course. every specialty. But, you know, if you see pregnant ladies all day, I mean, you can become very specialized and very, very comfortable in that context, right? Mm -hmm. um, that there's all kinds of challenges that they face. They are extremely skilled and they can do all kinds of things. But if that's not the, the kind of patient that you're seeing day in and day out for many years, and then you're, you're struck with these different um, challenging situations, then it, it can be an uncomfortable thing. I just happen to, I, I sort of enjoy that. So it, it's, uh, and I think a lot of my colleagues do too, right? It's an opportunity to, to really learn for a very long time because you have to build up that volume much more slowly, right? Yeah. And I think, so I think that's one thing that some people think, well, you know, that's, that's an uncomfortable situation to put yourself in. And then the added challenge in the North is that you don't have access to those specialists as 
readily, right? Right. Um, and so you end up now we, we are treated very wonderfully and we do have uh, people and in, uh, in, in various specialists who are kind of assigned to our region and they're a phone call away. But I feel like we, we do have the opportunity to manage a little bit more for various, re- you know, various reasons, including that distance. I, I have to manage them a little bit further than you might if you were in an, in a, in an urban setting. Working in such a, um, an environment, what would you say is you've learned the most about maybe about yourself? It's a challenging question to answer because um, I think, again, any doctor early in their career. So I, I, I started basically January 1st, 2019. And that, as, that was my, the beginning of my career as an independent um, practitioner. And I think any doctor in their first year will tell you that the, the first year and the first couple of years are really, the learning curve is really steep. Um, I think that might be even more the case, arguably, for family doctors, because as I mentioned, the residency is shorter and it's very general. Um, so you're seeing all kinds of stuff and you're, you have to learn really rapidly. That in, in and of itself, the medical aspect that, that, you, that you need to learn, I knew that going in, but you can't really um, appreciate it until you're going through it. <laughs> And then my context is a little bit more challenging, and I have other colleagues going through the same thing. But I, you know, there's been additional things, which is, um, you know, which are the cultural context in which I work. I'm working on a, in an indigenous community, a Cree, a Cree community, where it's just been a tremendously eye-opening experience. And honestly, on top of it, something that's a little bit different about my, my own experience is that I volunteered to become the chief of medicine in April last year, which added a whole kind of new level of uh, whole, whole new level of responsibility and mm-hmm. tasks and, and skills that I've had to try to develop over the course of the year. So it's been uh, it's been a very busy <laughs> it's yeah, been a very busy uh, last year or so. I mean, I didn't know that it's since 2019, you just started your, your, your career. I mean, that's yeah. incredible. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's just a year ago, practically. And you're yeah. in this environment where anybody and anything can come through your front door and you're just got to be ready to jump into action. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's been, but you know, that's, that's a very, that's a very good, uh, analogy, <laughs> but, um, it's the it's basically the one of the main reasons that I went there. It, it was because I saw it as a really great opportunity to learn because I knew that I'd be challenged in ways that I might not otherwise be. There's some fewer safety nets, you know. Not that I'm putting down that other aspect of family medicine, mm-hmm. where, which is more urban. I think that I know. I mean, many of my colleagues from residency who are just like tremendously intelligent mm-hmm. um, are working in urban centers, and those centers are lucky to have them. Um, but I knew for myself uh, personally, I wanted to be have this have this kind of very broad, unique exposure. Um, so it's it's in a way expected, but also until you're going through it, you don't really know. You know, you can't appreciate it until you're really experiencing it. Yeah, with um, the uh, what yeah. we just went through with COVID being such a remote area, how would you say that the that COVID affected you guys? I mean, there must be some particular health concerns in that community. Absolutely. I mean, it was very intense. I guess to start, it, it, it's a, it was a unique situation because it's remote. And because it's remote, uh, we were lucky to not have COVID actually enter the region in the context of um, 
community transmission. So there was mm -hmm. no person-to-person -person transmission. We did have a few cases, but they were all uh, infections that occurred in the South and then, and then like, you know, in, either in the hospital setting or otherwise, and then people that returned to the community. But these people were identified and, and, and no transmission has occurred yet locally mm -hmm. or within the, within the region. It's a massive concern. It's an ongoing concern to all of us. Uh, both the healthcare workers and, um, you know, the Cree people in the region, Cree government and, and just, you know, everybody, um, that it could be a real problem, real disaster if, if there begins to be community transmission there. And the reason for that, unfortunately, the health status of, I mean, it's not just Indigenous people in the, in the James Bay region, but everywhere. But in our region, we have the, you know, so, some pretty challenging health and social issues which could lead to just tremendously uh, terrible outcomes if COVID uh, arrives in the region and so um, we are again we were all extremely nervous about that and and we remain so but have been able to benefit from the lag time in in it reaching our community so are you able to talk a little bit about some of the unique challenges of or health challenges of the communities that you work in that could be uh be more problematic in in regards to this sure i think that to begin with what you can look at is is the rates of of certain chronic diseases and then and then you can talk about why those rates are what they are we have so we have very high rates of uh of you know metabolic type diseases, so diabetes is extremely prevalent in our region. Um, I've heard 30% of people. I suspect it's higher than that. Mm -hmm. um, now I'm sure some of my senior colleagues will be <laughs> will disagree with me, but yeah. uh, I, I think that we're going to have better and better statistics as time goes forward. But so we have you know very high rates of diabetes, very high rates of uh, obesity, and I mean like serious obesity like the you know people with with very challenging health health problems as a result we have um chronic kidney disease which are related to those things um uh and a lot of uh, you know tobacco use and, and all these all these things just those issues in addition to coronary artery disease which is becoming more and more prevalent but again i don't think we have very good statistics um but just trust me when i say very much more, like substantially more prevalent than, than further South. Yeah. Um, that's the morbidity profile or one of the major morbidity profiles that, that leads to worse outcomes with COVID. Right. So, yeah. you know, we look around and we see this and we know that this is going to be a big problem. Um, additionally, you look at the housing situation, which in the James Bay, Bay region, as I understand it, is not as bad as some other indigenous uh, regions. However, it's still really bad. You know, I have patients, I have some patients who, and, and, and colleagues and friends who live in, you know, homes with five people in them, even two sometimes. I have a patient that has, lives alone, but then I have other patients where there's 15 people living in a two bedroom home. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's really not abnormal uh, uh, in terms of, you know, it is abnormal. I think it's an, it's really not a safe situation, but it's not abnormal in terms of how common that is. Um, and again, so that's a problem for all kinds of reasons, but then you put it in the context of COVID and disease spread yeah. uh, and virus spread, and it's just really worrisome, right? 
here's what I, I know that people are going to say. And I know what my personal answer would be, but I know people say, well, you choose to live in these remote areas and, you know, that's life. You're going to get all the things that isolation comes with. I know, like, I'm just putting that out. That's not how sure. I feel, but I know right. that's how some people will feel and they'll say, well, that's what, that's what you get when you live in isolation. You get uh, more alcohol use, smoking, mm-hmm. you get education problems, you get family dynamic problems. So move back to the urban areas. Mm-hmm. What do you say to that, Bernie? You know, I, somebody, uh, to be honest with you, somebody that I really like, somebody that I, I, um, that's a friend, said, actually said that point blank to me last week. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, no matter how much I know that that's a, pre, you know, a very common uh, opinion, idea, I, it's still very shocking to me to hear that. Um, and, you know, and even, even to take uh, the way that you framed the question, and again, I understand that that's not likely your opinion, mm-hmm. where you said move back to the urban centers. There's no, it's not moving back, right? Ooh, interesting, uh, it, it's, yes. It's, it's where these, where these people sort of where these people come from. Even the, the communities they live in now, they've been forced to live in by and large, right? Mm-hmm. So we're talking about, again, my, I have to be careful when I start talking about these things because I'm not, I'm not an academic. I'm not indigenous. I'm not a, I'm not a Cree person. I'm not an indigenous person and I'm not a historian, but, um, you know, a lot of this is from just experience, I guess, and things that I've read and, and whatnot. But it's, I think, very challenging, but not an enormous leap to try to put ourselves in their situation. And it's something that's become more more obvious to me now that I, I work there. And, and again, I can talk and talk and talk, but until you live it, it's it's very very challenging to fully empathize, right? But mm-hmm. this is there. It's it's a completely distinct, almost completely distinct culture, right? This is a different distinct culture within the nation of Canada. And I can't emphasize that enough. Of course, there's spillover because of the way the world is now, because there's travel back and forth, which is easy. There's roads, there's internet, there's this and that. So, you know, people are driving trucks around in cars and, and they have TV and all this stuff. But there, this is a, a group of people which, which was very distinct not that long ago, right? Mm-hmm. And it's still distinct. And there's... I would say grades of that again, because of, uh, you know, some people are Christian, some people follow traditional beliefs, but you have the, the Western, Western colonists that came over, not really not very long ago and has systematically um, tried to destroy that, that, uh, that culture, that people they have. And I mean, this is written point blank in government policy, right? Mm-hmm. From not very long ago, you know, would anyone really be comfortable with that? You know? If let's say our roles were reversed or our positions were reversed or another nation came to Canada and told us, no, you can't live in Montreal. We want to use this land for something else. So you're going to, we're going to, we're going to put you on a marsh or a swamp because nobody wants that. This is where you live now. And uh, that's your situation. You didn't, you know, you can't, (laughs) your, 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 uh, your language and your culture is primitive right? That's the opinion of, uh, of the colonists. So we're going to, we're not only going to promote our language, we're going to forbid you, we're going to take your children away and forbid you and them from speaking your language. I mean, what kind of response do people expect from, 
from, from, you know, I could, you could go on and on, you know, again, I was thinking about and, and leading back to your question, which I think is kind of the more in the context of, of our, of the discussion of what I've learned, what I, what I've learned about, yeah. And you know, the, the, at least the Cree people that I work with is that, yeah, you know, I see, I see a lot of tough situations and I see a lot of um, badness, but the resilience and the strength of the of of people in general and the culture is really astounding because if you think about what they've been put through and you can't really you cannot overstate what has been done to these people and we can we can remind ourselves of of some of those things i i find it incredible that they that uh how strong they remain how resilient they are how much they try to maintain and are maintaining their culture and even reclaiming it, you know? Um, and so what, I mean, why should they come and integrate quote unquote integrate or assimilate into a society that actually doesn't know what's best for them? Right. 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 I listen, I, I mean, I, you know, I agree personally, Bernie, like a thank yeah. you for your answer. Like right out, man, that, that was, I kind of had my fingers crossed. I'm like, I'm going to throw this question at Bernie and mm-hmm. I, I, I hope he answers it in a way that I believe he might. (laughs) That's not why we ask questions, right? To get the answer we're hoping for. However, I know how I feel about this issue. I do feel Mm -hmm. that, you know, the environment is not a separate problem from a people problem, right? The environment and people go together. And sometimes I don't think it's a leap to think that to look at how the indigenous people are living and look at the environment. I don't think there's a disconnect there. No, no. Yeah. I mean, and it's, and it's really a situation, you know, no matter what people want to say, it's not a situation that they created. It's very much the West, you know, the Western colonial colonialist. Not that again, I'm not a historian, I, I know. but it's what we what we have forced on them, right? Now that being said, and I think that that uh, what even I did to a certain degree until relatively recently, and I hear other people do, is say, well, hey, well, why don't we just, yeah, why don't we just force them to come come live south, or why don't we why don't we teach them this or that or this or that? But that's really the root of the problem, right? It's mm-hmm. us. It's the mentality that our way of life and what we do is better. So we know what's better. Why don't we make them do that? But that's how we screwed the whole, that's how the whole thing was screwed up to begin with, right? <laughs> Plus all the greed and other things that that led to this situation. Anyway, I'm going off on tangents. No, really, there was no you know tangent. <laughs> I, but I get you. When we talk yes. about this particular subject, anything right. you say opens a Pandora's box of what's really next, does. right? Because first we're talking about uh, indigenous populations and we know yeah. what's been done to them historically. And then we mm-hmm. know what, we know the ramifications of this isolation isolated lifestyle they have to live and but also the diminished um, natural environment that they have to use uh, one of my buddies who went on a salmon fishing salmon fishing trip recently told me that the world is down to like five percent of its original salmon stocks right I'm like Okay, so you're removing all these natural resources from people who are already in isolation, but they were having no problem of it prior to colonization, right? 
Oh man, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like you said. We can talk about that, like that aspect in and of itself is such an enormous topic. Something that exemplifies the ongoing kind of greed and and um, abuse of the environment, and specifically, you know, it, what was formerly and uh, still are uh, to a, in, in a certain context, just indigenous lands. Or, you know, it, it came up recently in the co- in the context of COVID, in a meeting we had regionally. Although this is well well known and it's and it's publicized, but somebody pointed this out, and I found it very very apt uh, to what we're talking about. The Quebec government sort of listed what they considered to be essential services, and because essential services are those you know services that that would be allowed to cross borders, uh, etc., or go to work if uh, if necessary. What did they consider essential services? Pro- I don't know if it was province wide or specifically for the James Bay region. So fine, healthcare workers, right? Um, and then uh, transport, so of foods and goods, etc. And then mining, forestry, and uh, I don't know, maybe fisheries or something. I'm, I don't know. But basically, these things that the Quebec government has makes huge profit off of, right? Mm-hmm. And then, thankfully, the uh, Cree, Cree government was able to, you know, they they actually had able to exercise a, a quite a substantial amount of control over the region, which have to say, well, you know, actually. We're okay with losing a bit of money money on mining if it means that we can save the lives of our people by not allowing by preventing COVID as much as possible from entering the region. But you know what what is the motive of the Quebec government to allow mining to persist? Right, they're not exact. You know what I mean? And I I do sympathize with anyone that's out of work. You know that, that I uh, you know that it's it's a terrible thing that people are 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 losing their incomes and I and I really sympathize with that. I can't I can't overstate that either. But um, to see how the Quebec government and, and different, you know, um, governing bodies prioritize these things was very interesting. Yeah, well, we set up a, a fragile system in the first place. Just because it was working for a long time and a lot of people got rich on the system doesn't necessarily mean it was the best way of doing it. Just going back to your point alone of this this idea of people wanting to control and force people to adapt to a lifestyle that we think right. is the best one. Yeah, it's the idea of we do it right, you do it wrong, and so we're going to make you do it our way, right? Right, right. And I have, we have no real reason, you know, we, we t- you, you're taking the autonomy away from an entire culture, an entire group of people. How could that not have enormous deleterious effects, enormous, just like, you know, just a disastrous effect? It would be very naive to think that, let's say they did do that, and, and God forbid that, that it ever happens, that people are forced to come and live in urban centers. How How is that going to go? How would that be better? I think some people can do it, and it works just fine, and some people can bridge that. But it's very naive to think that that's, that that's a solution. It is. I, uh, I don't know what the solution is, though. You know, I think that there are some generalities that we can that we can make, like I have, that I don't think that the solution should be imposed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it needs to come from indigenous people and indigenous communities. And keeping in mind also that there are a massive diversity of communities, right, and nations within uh, the indigenous population. Yeah. And so it, it's not straightforward beyond that, in my opinion eventually once we all get it in our head that the struggles of other cultures and societies affect all of us i think then we can start to help to create a better more sustainable model for us all to live under yeah i i mean i agree it's a daunting task a daunting goal but i i agree i, I think one of the first things to do is just acknowledge that there isn't one way to do things 
I think that diversity can be an enormous uh, strength. It can be the strength, you know, but it, it's just a matter of acknowledging that, you know, and I, I think that some people and some cultures might be better at it than others. Although, you know, we have to say that Canada has made enormous errors and, and done and, 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 and caused travesties. But at this, you know, we do have a, a very diverse culture that probably works better than in some other places, but there's still so much to learn and, and improve upon. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think acknowledging, just acknowledging that and thinking about that can make, could make such a big difference. Just op- being open-minded to the notion that, okay, we don't all have to think the same. We don't all have to live the same either. And we're not going to. Um, and that's okay, as long as we're not, you know, of course, impeding on each other's rights and so forth. But enforcing certain ways of life or on other people is just really, really not a good idea. Right. All right, yeah. man. So now, listen, as we wind down here, Bernie, I got three quick blast-off questions I want to send your way because I always okay. like people who are listening. You know, we all hit those forks in the road of life and developing ourselves and being our best selves helps us to get past those obstacles that we encounter. And I want to hear what you got to say to these three questions, Bernie. So one of the okay. things is, how do you stay optimistic? What are your practices to keep your optimism high while you're trying to help people who are in a vulnerable situation? a very very good question i think that one of the ways that i have been working on that and and continue to is is to be patient so i think that we can all change in in many positive ways and and many good things can happen but to not expect things to happen quickly because sometimes when we expect fast results in many many contexts we can get frustrated we can give up we can we can lose steam but be realistic but optimistic that things can change but they sometimes they they take a lot of time and that's okay awesome yeah okay what health goals are you presently working on you're a doctor you're a healthy guy i know you train but what are you working on right now bernie that's a good question specifically um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I just I heard say, eagles. I, I before when you're speaking, I heard like hawks in the background, man. Yeah, that that yeah, could I, be it. That could be it, man. I'm just trying to chill out by the lake and listen to the birds. <laughs> yeah, you know what? It's something that I spend probably possibly too much time thinking about. So I often have a lot of different health goals. Um, but you're right. Actually, chilling out is one of them. It's something uh, I've been trying to work on mindfulness and odd. It's something I've been trying to work on doing for a long time, but it sort of comes in waves. And then all of a sudden I'll find myself really getting caught up in the turmoil of, of everything, you know, life, work and relationships and this and that. And I forget to sort of try to ground myself and, and, and center myself because when I do that, I find that not only am I, am I more productive and so forth, I'm able to enjoy life a little bit more. You know, you can, you can kind of appreciate life a little bit more because it goes, it goes by quickly. Everything goes by really quickly. Um, yeah, yeah really and you connect. Does. You connect with people better that way too. I find, which is important in, really important in my in my line of work. Yeah. So, what would yeah. you say you do to sort of disconnect? What is it that you do? What is there anything specific? I, I again, it sort of go, goes in waves. One of the ways that I do it is I try to practice meditation, and I and I'm and I'm trying to make that more and more of a habit. So, well, it's gone in waves, but I think I, I've, I'm trying to set more reasonable goals. So maybe less amount of time dedicated to that, so that it's more achievable. Because when I finally do sit down, I, I can easily sit there for, you know, 45 minutes, um, but. When I think about sitting down for 45 minutes, it's kind of, you know, it seems like a, a, a large time commitment. 
Um, so that's one of the ways I do it. And I, and I have to say also that just, I, I do train a lot. I think you've, you've seen me training mm -hmm. a bit at the, at the gym. And it's also one of the ways that I ground myself is by, is by exercising. And I do a lot of weight, uh, weight lifting and, and things like that. Excellent. Now you're a whole new generation of doctor and Bernie, you know, I appreciate you so much. And I want to ask you, what's your best doctor's advice for people today? Wow. Okay. Something that I could use uh, a little more time to think about maybe, but I'll try to come up with something. <laughs> um, so your elevator pitch, Bernie. We're on an elevator. Hey, doc, what do I got to do to live longer? <laughs> um, I think, you know, one of the reasons that I, that I wanted to get into medicine and specifically family medicine to begin with was preventative medicine. So the idea of sort of healthy lifestyle, I think that ultimately there are things in our power and out of our power to live a longer, healthier life. So I would say it helps if people think about what, what to them means a healthy life, what is health to them. And really, I would say that's, it's really up to you, you know, and I think that to decide on what that is and how to, how to achieve that. And I would say it doesn't have to be really intense. It doesn't have to be huge, drastic changes. Maybe it, maybe it can be for you, but even small steps towards that idea of health for whatever that is for you, then take, take small steps toward that. Right. So I, I, I use, a, I'll just give you an example where oftentimes I end up talking about diet and exercise in, in clinic. You don't have to do what I do, which is like, I like going to the gym and, and a lot of, most people really don't like that. They don't like going and lifting weights and, and it's an intimidating setting for some people and so forth. But I can tell you that it's very important to exercise, but find something that you actually like doing so that it might be something that you will do. And I encourage you, you know, I, I just encourage people to do that because they're more likely to do it and do it in steps that are achievable. I've said a lot. I don't know if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Very much. Yeah. Well, Bernie, I just want to take this opportunity to uh, acknowledge what you do, uh, the work that you do, that you're helping people in, in ways that I just so admire. I just want to thank you so much again, giving me your time, especially being up there by the cottage, trying to chill out and you find yourself answering all these questions and no, no, uh, I... much appreciated, Sorry, much appreciated. My, it was my pleasure. It was really, uh, it was actually super fun, uh, super fun chatting. All right. Thanks, my man. No problem. My pleasure.